All right, so we're going to continue this morning into class four, The Suffering of the God-Man. Now, if you look at the title for this morning's class, God's Grief Over Suffering, the Empathy of the Suffering God-Man. So all of the gods worshipped in the world or throughout the world, there is only one God who is a suffering God-Man. You don't find that in any other religion or worldview that's unique to Christianity. And this is at the same time, while it's uh, very comforting as we'll see, or I I hope it is as as we look at it, it's also something that's hard to wrap our minds around. The suffering God-man, which leads us into the hypostatic union, Jesus being truly God and truly man. How does, it's it's wider than our minds are able to, to, to grasp. Um, That's why he's God. But at the same time, it's very comforting. We serve a king who has suffered for his civilians, which is foreign, again, in every other religion. He walked that road. He understands. He knows us. His sufferings brings comfort to us in our weaknesses, and we'll see that in Scripture today. So how does the fact that Christ suffered help us to grow in our own suffering? So in the first three weeks of this class, we laid out a logical framework for thinking through suffering. So we talked about the fact that God doesn't owe us an explanation in our suffering. We can't sort of put him on trial and say, tell me why I'm suffering, and demand that he give us an answer. Instead, he calls us to faith. That was week one. Uh, The many purposes we see for suffering in the Bible and the reality of heaven and hell from weeks two and three We're supposed to be a sort of comfort for us, and we're supposed to ground um, our souls in the sort of soil of faith. We're trying to sort of stir our minds and hearts and souls to entrust ourselves to the Lord. And the things we talked about, while a solid rock can feel very hard when we rub against, when they rub against the very um, human condition of suffering. So today we turn to the empathy of the suffering God-man. Because as we learn how well he understands us, it helps us to trust him all the more. So as we look at this topic, we'll start with a brief look at the substance of that suffering in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we'll take some time to unpack Hebrews 4, um, which says that because of his suffering, Christ understands us. And then we'll look at first. Peter 2, which gives Christ's suffering as an example for us. Okay? So, the cross where love and justice meet. The love and justice meet in the person of Jesus Christ at the cross. He suffered and died a horrible death in our place so that God could show mercy to sinners. So for the rest of the class, we'll talk about how we can experience the mercy of God, because when we suffer, what we need is mercy. But first, we need to recognize that God's mercy to us as sinners could never come without Christ's suffering on the cross. So we know that God is just, right? God can't just overlook sin or sweep sin under a rug, because if he did, he wouldn't be a just God. We can't say he's holy if he's not just. We can't say he's love if he's not just right so God is a simple God he um, he is his attributes right God God is not made up of parts he's not uh, sort of these components put together he is love he is just justice he is mercy right and we know that that's true and at the same time we know that sinners have sinned against a holy God we've uh, broken his moral law and fallen short of the glory of God. And that means that because God is justice and because we are sinners by nature, we deserve the punishment for sin, which is eternal separation from God's goodness. Yet, he shows us mercy. So how does he do that? So if you turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21, we'll look at this together. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And if someone wants to read that for us, that'll be fine. Who 
Who wants to read that for us? Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so this is a passage that's often referred to, or one of them that's referred to as this great exchange. Right? God takes the sinner who deserves his wrath, and he, Christ, who is perfect without sin, and they switch places. Right? So the sinner um, in Christ, he is crucified because Christ has died for him. So he gets Christ's righteousness, Right. And Christ gets his death, which he didn't deserve. This great exchange. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus didn't simply suffer as an example or as an inspiration, though both are true. And you'll hear that as well. Um, other worldviews and religions will just sort of point to Jesus as the uh, Christus exemplar. He's just an example of um, how we should live. Uh, kind and be generous and all these other things. Uh, but they strip from that the essence of the incarnation, the essence of the crucifixion. It is one dying in the place of another. It's substitutionary atonement. Right? So it wasn't just as um, an, an inspiration or example. He suffered in our place. He suffered what we deserve. And so his suffering as a substitute purchases our ability to even consider his suffering as a source of comfort and as an example. It purchases our ability to even consider the rest of this class. Because of Jesus' suffering, our own suffering can make us fit for heaven rather than being a down payment for hell. And this is crucial for the Christian to understand because if we see our suffering as God sort of uh, dishing out um, sort of pieces of hell to us to punish us, and we don't see it as Hebrew says we should see it, as a loving father disciplining his children, then it will make us depressed and downcast constantly. It will cause us to question um, our salvation, to question our assurance, to question God's love for us. When we go through suffering, God, he hasn't, the Father hasn't preserved some of the wrath that he poured on Christ, and now he's sort of dishing it out to you a little bit at a time. Christ took the full cup of God's wrath, and he purchased salvation. So now discipline for the Christian is actually, as Hebrew says, a loving God displaying his love for you. So we have to get those categories right, or we'll be discouraged all the time. So most importantly, Jesus' suffering was for us. But beyond that, it offered us, offers us both comfort and an example, which we'll look at for the rest of our class. So third on your handout there, comfort in the God-man's empathy. Comfort in the God-man's empathy. One aspect of suffering that we can feel and it, that's, it, it can feel at times unbearable. It can feel like we don't have the strength, the energy, the ability to suffer what the Lord has called us to suffer. And I think another aspect of suffering that makes us feel, that makes it feel unbearable is that we feel alone, right? You feel like at that moment, you're the only one who's suffering. At that moment, there's no other person, Christian in the world who's experiencing suffering. And that can be very depressing as well. Solomon wrote that two are better than one, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. So he's saying it's really hard and it's terrible to be to have this sense of aloneness, to feel like when you fall, there's no one else to help you. And that's a part of, I think, the discomfort and unbearableness of suffering. Now, think of what suffering is like when no one understands, no one's been through it before, no one can help you. I think we've all gone through times where we've uh, sort of expressed our pain or our suffering to someone 
and we can tell by their advice that they haven't been through it so they'll just sort of maybe throw out some some advice to you sort of a christianese saying and we say you don't get it right and we're sort of looking for someone who can identify and empathize that they've been through what we've been through not to say that we can't encourage each other in you know many ways but there is something about that unique empathy and suffering so although that's sometimes hard to find yet no matter how alone we may feel in our suffering when we come to the cross we find that Christ can actually empathize Christ can empathize Empathy is when you know from experience what a person is going through. And the amazing thing about Jesus is that he doesn't just sympathize, but he can also empathize with our suffering. So here's what Hebrews 4 says. Turn to Hebrews 4. We're going to read 14 to 16. We're thinking about the uh, empathy of the suffering God-man. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Let me have someone read that for us. Thank you. So what this verse is saying that uh, saying is that Christ has uh, walked in our shoes, so he's able to empathize with us. Um, he has gone through uh, what we've gone through in our suffering, and that doesn't mean that um, Christ necessarily had to um, endure every type of suffering. Right? There are many millions of ways to endure suffering in this life. But Christ has principally endured suffering on the root level of every suffering. That's what he's endured. So we'll, we'll talk about that, that for a little bit. I want to, before we go there, actually, I want to talk about the idea of a suffering God. Right? This question, how can... Um, the God-man suffer, which we'll talk about, but you even hear this idea of God suffering. So can God suffer? Can God, who is spirit, right, does not have a body like man, uh, God in his divine essence, can he suffer? John Stott helps us with his fictional image, and this is what he says. He pictures billions of people around the throne of God. He wrote this, some shrank back, but others objected. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Screamed one woman who had suffered in a Nazi, in a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. What did God know of weeping, hunger, and hatred? God leads a sheltered life in heaven, she said. Someone from Hiroshima, people born deformed, others murdered, each sent forward a leader. They concluded that God could judge them only after he endured suffering as they did. Then he can pronounce a verdict. So here's the question. Does God, in his divine essence, have to suffer in order for him to have compassion and love for us. Because this is something that is held up to God often. Um, atheists and some agnostics, they'll say, well, God doesn't understand. He can't. How can he be good and allow suffering is one question. But he's, he's God. How can he suffer and say that he understands us? And then how can he judge us if he hasn't suffered? Does God have to endure suffering in order to have compassion and love? Well, God is, an old word, impassable. He's impassable. 
that means that he is without passions. Now, when we think of passions, we think about a guy who's passionately in love with his girlfriend or a girl who's passionate about that mission or that cause. But in earlier times, the word passion was used to refer to someone or something that was vulnerable to change. Right, so they had a different idea of passions. When 16th century theologians said that God was without passions or impassable, they were distinguishing him as immutable and self-sufficient, <clears throat> distinct from his creatures. So, and you see this in our confession in the 1689. In chapter 2 in paragraph 1, it says that he, God, is invisible and has no body, parts, or passions. And there's sort of a little note there. Passions means changeable emotions. God is without body, parts, or changeable emotions. Now, I'd say that God is impassable. He's without passions, meaning changeable emotions. Does that mean that God is stoic or lifeless or indifferent or apathetic? Does that mean that he is incapable of love or compassion? Now, thinking about John Stott's story of the people putting God on trial, that's unfortunately a common caricature of God. But impassibility, unchangeable emotions uh, in God, actually shows the opposite of this sort of stoic, apathetic God. It shows that God could not be more alive and more loving than he is eternally. Okay, so we're going to wade into the deeper end of the pool here. He cannot be more alive or loving than he is eternally. Now, remember, Scripture not only says God is immutable, but it also says that he is infinite. We see that in Psalm 147.5, in Romans 11.33, and Ephesians 1.19. He is immeasurable. He is unlimited. God is his attributes in infinite measure. In other words, he is maximally alive. There is no deficiency in him. Now, if you apply this truth to an attribute like love, you start to see why impassibility and unchangeable God makes a difference. If God doesn't have changeable emotions, then he doesn't simply have love, he is love. And he is love in infinite measure. So he can't become more loving than he is already eternally. If he did, his love would be changeable or passable. It would change from good to better. So if God loves you a little more tomorrow than he loves you today, then that means that there's some deficiency in his love and it wasn't perfect to begin with. You, you see the connection there? He has to be eternally, maximally loving toward you, which he is, which is deeply comforting when we go through seasons of struggling with sin or when we have a terrible day and we sin against the Lord and sin against our friend or our boss or whoever and we lay our head on the pillow at night and we say, I blew it today. The Lord must love me less. Or we get an idea in our minds that God is like man and he's sort of stiff arming us and he's saying, today you blew it. Give me some time to calm down because I'm really mad at you right now and we'll talk about this tomorrow morning, right? We view God like he's a man, but his love isn't graduating like, like ours is. It's always maximally, eternally loving. What that means is God cannot love you any more than he does now. Christian, doesn't matter what you did yesterday or last week or earlier this year, his love for you hasn't um, diminished. Right? It hasn't gone up and down and back and forth. He is maximally loving to you now. This comes out of the fact that God doesn't have emotional change. If he does, then we should be discouraged and downcast, but he doesn't. He's maximally loving all the time. 
even now. So again, when we've applied this truth to love, we start to see why it's so important. In light of that, impassibility assures that God is love, again, in infinite measure. While the love of a passable God is subject to change and improvement, the love of an impassable God cannot change because it's infinitely perfect. God does not depend on our suffering to activate and fulfill his love. He is love in infinite measure, eternally, unchangeably. Okay? Now, I know that may seem strange, but only impassibility can give us a personal God who is eternal, unchangeable love. What that means is far from being apathetic or indifferent, um, God is impassable and his impassibility promises that the believer that God cannot be any more loving than he is eternally. <clears throat> now, to bring this point home, here's an illustration. So imagine that your house uh, suddenly is caught on fire. As you escape the flames and watch from the street, you realize that your child is still inside the house. What if in that moment, a neighbor runs up to you and wanting to empathize with your pain, he lights himself on fire? Naturally, you throw yourself back in shock and his response of lighting himself on fire may even make you more terrified and frustrated with the situation. What do you really need at that moment? You need a firefighter who can, with a steady, controlled confidence, survey the situation, run into the flames, and save your child from the burning building. Only the firefighter who refuses to be overcome by an emotional meltdown is your hope in that terrible situation. The point is that a God who suffers, a God subject to emotional change is actually not comforting at all. A God who suffers may be like us, but he cannot rescue us. In fact, an emotional God is just as helpless as we are. In times of suffering, we need a God who, is, who does not suffer, one who overcame suffering and overcomes suffering in order to redeem us to return justice in this fallen and evil world. God in his divine essence <clears throat> does not experience suffering and cannot experience suffering. Suffering is contrary to his nature. But a body was prepared for Jesus. Hebrews 10, 5. A body was prepared for Jesus. Not because God was lacking something, but in order to fulfill his eternal purposes. So that Christ could suffer, enter into our suffering, and die to save his people from eternal suffering. Christ would satisfy the just wrath of God and continue as a faithful priest who intercedes for his people. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 to 18. We'll look at that verse, those verses together. Can I have someone read those verses for us? Hebrews 2, 17 to 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, thank you. Now, going back to the fuller passage of Hebrews 4. So we, we read Hebrews 2 to, again, show us <clears throat> that the God-man is the suffering servant. And Hebrews 10.5 qualifies the God-man by saying a body was prepared for Christ. God in his divine essence cannot suffer, but the God-man does suffer 
Indeed, it was predestined that he would suffer in order to bring us to God. Right? But when we go back to Hebrews 4, um, in its wider context, which you'll see on, on your handout there, um, we're going to take that in four pieces so that we can see exactly how Christ's empathy in our suffering brings comfort. One, Jesus understands our weakness. So much of the difficulty of suffering comes when we feel that God is asking us to do more than what is humanly possible. But again, a body was prepared for Christ. God and man in one person. He understands. That's the beauty of the incarnation. So there's a lot of practical implications of this. Yeah, right. So, again, if we say that uh, God in his divine essence, the Father, suffers, that he undergoes suffering, then we have, we, there are some scriptures that we have to look at that have to inform our thinking about that. But Hebrews, again, 10.5 says that a body was prepared for him. Why was the body prepared for him? In order for him to be a faithful high priest and suffer in order that he might bring us to God. So it's a, a line there we have to, to tote. And our um, wanting to uh, make God more compassionate and our assuming that he is less compassionate than he is will say that God has suffered. And that, that was a very uh, popular idea after World, 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 World War I and II where there was this idea that well, God, in order for him to empathize and sympathize, he has to be a God who suffers. And unfortunately, that sort of injected into Christian theology a thinking about God that was, I think, ultimately, I think it had, it appeared to be helpful, but it had theological holes in it. And ultimately, it says something about God and his divine essence that's not true. But Jesus is unique. He is the God-man. So maintaining the hypostatic union helps us to better understand how he is able to suffer. Remaining God, and again, this is a mystery. <laughs> we, we, we can't, we don't fully um, comprehend it. Um, and it, again, there's mystery there, but it's true. And we ought to say, and we must say, because scripture says it, that the God-man suffers. God in his divine essence doesn't. So we have a suffering God-man and who's able to, to sympathize with our weaknesses. Yeah. Also, the way God suffers is proportional to reality. But in our case, we either don't suffer enough for what's happening, or we suffer too much. So again, mm -hmm. the difference between him and us. So, um, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. It's more than I'm thinking of trying to yeah. put it yeah. together. Yeah. But that's a good thought, though. Okay, let's, let's uh, continue here. It says, as one writer put it, virtually every psalm is either about the Messiah or by the Messiah. And so they say things that go beyond what any human author had ever experienced. So Psalm 1, for example, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. No one but Jesus could have ever said that he did that, right? Or Psalm 22, words that were written for Jesus to use. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many of the Psalms describe the suffering of Jesus. Uh, they use them to, <clears throat> we should use them rather, to walk through our own suffering using the words that Jesus used or that were used of Jesus even before his incarnation. Jesus was weak, and through the Psalms, he explores faith in weakness. Point two on your sheet there. Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. And we're gonna, I'm going to explain what that means. Hebrews 4 doesn't say that Jesus has suffered in every way that we have, but that he was tempted in every way that we have been. 
Now, if suffering is most essentially a struggle for faith, and faith is a struggle against temptation, that means that Jesus has experienced the main point of every trial um, that we ever face. So let's say that uh, your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you. <clears throat> has Jesus ever experienced that? No, no not in the physical. You know that he wasn't, didn't have a girlfriend or a secret lover, which some blasphemously say. Um, no, he hasn't. But what is the root struggle in that trial? If your struggle to trust God, it's your struggle to trust God who just took away in that moment all that you hoped for in that relationship. So at that moment, your struggle is to believe that God has done only what is best for you. And in that way, what has happened to you is this uh, temptation now to doubt God, right? And our actions, the fruit of our motives show that we do doubt God. Now, did Jesus face circumstances that would tempt him to doubt God? Yes. You think about when Jesus was tempted by Satan to feed himself, to protect himself, to satisfy himself. Turn these stones to bread. Throw yourself off the cliff. Bow down and worship me. But Jesus submitted his human will to the divine will of God, as we should do. So use that to trust his wisdom and your suffering. Does he call you to be abandoned, persecuted, crushed? Um, he has experienced all that and more. He knows exactly what he is doing and knows exactly how it feels. So again, the encouragement is trust him. Again, we're thinking about the empathy of the suffering God-man. <clears throat> Verse three on your note sheet there. Yet without sin. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus never gave in. In fact, having been tempted in ways that we never have, because temptation for us, when you think about this, temptation for us, <clears throat> it stops at the moment we give in, right? That thing that you want, that thing that you, you pursue, that you're um, in sin, you're, you're tempted and you're going after it. As soon as sin has tricked you and you take a hold of that thing, the temptation stops. Some other one pops up at another time, but at that moment, the temptation stops. But Jesus never gave in. And the difference between our temptation and Jesus' temptation is that we struggle with sin all the time. So it doesn't look as horrific to us as it should, right? So Jesus never gave in to temptation and he was perfect. And so as sin sort of um, our familiarity with sin, as it taints our view of sin, right? It's, it's never as ugly to us as it should be. It doesn't matter how long we've been in the faith. <laughs> it doesn't matter how zealous we feel at that moment. Because of our natural corruption, sin has never, is never as ugly to us as it should be. But Jesus was perfect, so sin was always as horrific to him as it should be, right? So his, his view... Uh, his perception wasn't tainted by his familiarity with sin as ours is. Jesus was tempted from outside of himself. Our temptation comes from outside and from within. Also, because Jesus never gave in to sin, he was able to see it as horrific and detestable as it could be. In other words, sin was as ugly to Jesus as it could possibly have been which makes his temptation not less intense, but more intense. And he did it, and all of this entrusting himself to the Holy Spirit um, as his source of help and comfort and strength, which again, we should do. John 3.34 says Jesus had the spirit beyond measure. And Luke 4.18 and Acts 10.37 says that Jesus was anointed with the spirit to fulfill his earthly ministry. In other words, he entrusted himself to the help of the Spirit. 
What that means is that Jesus, right, the hypostatic union, truly God and truly man, his human um, nature didn't sort of cheat and tap into his divine nature when he was um, living his life on earth and his incarnation, when he was uh, tempted by Satan to feed himself, to protect himself. Um, he didn't, his, 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 in his human nature, he didn't, he didn't cheat, right? He didn't draw this sort of, uh, he sort of reach into his divine nature and pull out some, some uh, unique uh, power. And then that's how he endured uh, as one who was truly human. Jesus was truly human. That means that he lived his life dependent upon the Holy Spirit, which the Bible tells us in John 3.34, Luke 4.18, for strength, for help. Right? Pastor Ron has been preaching on how, just preached on how Jesus, he awoke early in the morning and he went to pray. He went to have communion with his Father. Right? All of this was done by the Spirit. Right? He wasn't cheating. This actually makes it should be encouraging to us. It shows us that Jesus was truly human. And there are heresies throughout church history that has said that Jesus and his humanity, well, he wasn't really truly human. He was actually just a shell of a man. He had the appearance of humanity, but he was just, he was fully, um, fully and wholly divine. So they say that, but they strip from him his true humanity. And there are other heresies that go on the other end. Right? and say that he was just human with no, divine, no divinity. They deny the hypostatic union. But these are things that we have to recover and hold to because they're not just sort of theoretical ideas. They help us in our suffering. Jesus, who was truly human, suffered in the place of those who are truly human. It doesn't say that he's not divine. He's truly God and truly man. Hypostatic union, God and man. Okay, the fourth point on your sheet there. <clears throat> and I know this is, I'm sure you guys have comments and questions. I'll try to leave some time at the end, maybe the last 10 minutes to try and answer questions if you have any. But the fourth uh, point on your sheet there, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. What's the application of these first three truths? Perseverance in prayer. Romans 8:26. the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Remember that the Spirit who intercedes for you is the same Spirit that empowered Christ to suffer on the cross. We see that in Hebrews as well. It says that of Christ through the divine Spirit or through the Spirit, he offered himself as a sacrifice. <clears throat> Christ's suffering on the cross was even through the Spirit. He entrusted himself to the Holy Spirit. Now, looking back at Hebrews 4.14, it says, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. In other words, let us hold fast our confession. Suffering is a battle for faith. And Christ's empathy toward us in our suffering is comfort that helps us to trust the Lord. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself as the God-man. So, if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God and that he went to the cross, then we have a deep encouragement and strength to face what sometimes feels excruciating, these realities of life under the sun. At the cross, we see what kind of God we are trusting a God who understands. He's not cold and indifferent, as some would think. In fact, Psalm 56 says he cares so much that he counts every toss and turn of the sleepless nights that you have in your suffering, and that he bottles each and every tear. The Lord is not far off or distant or indifferent. Right? So the last section here in your handout is Jesus suffering as an example for us. So turn to 1 Peter 2 verse, and we'll read verses 20 to 24. 
First Peter 2, verses 20 to 24. And I'll go ahead and read it for us. <clears throat> It says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, as I mentioned before, Jesus is not primarily an example for us to follow. That's what we saw in the past few, uh, few, few verses we looked at. Jesus' death was indeed substitutionary. Yes, it was an example, but it was also substitutionary. But it is also um, an example for us to follow. It's not primarily, but it is an example for us to follow. In this passage, um, we see three ways that we can find encouragement from Jesus' suffering. First, we see that he committed no sin. How often are we tempted to sin when we're suffering? Your boss blames you for a failed uh, project at work, and the next day you see his windows open in the parking lot as it starts to rain. What should you do <laughs> in that moment? It can be really easy, right, to say, the Lord caused it to rain. <laughs> He left his windows down. You know, that's, that's his, his responsibility. And you just go to work. And you work as unto the Lord. <laughs> but Jesus didn't only not do the wrong thing. He went and did the right thing. Right? He showed compassion to his enemies. At that moment, that person, your boss, whoever it is, they feel like your enemy. Right? Your opponent. But, again... Jesus committed no sin. That means that he didn't just, again, pass on doing the right thing. He didn't just pass up, you know, the car and say, let, let, let God let live. Or what's that saying? Let, let live and let God. I, I know what it is. It's, it's off anyway. But he actually went and he did the right thing. <clears throat> Second there, you see, no deceit was found in his mouth. Truth telling is in suffering is crucial. Truth-telling and suffering is crucial. So we have to learn to tell the truth about ourselves, and we have to learn to tell the truth about the, the one accusing us, and we have to learn to tell the truth about God. All three of those is hard at that moment. When you're in suffering and you're dealing with some issue with some person, telling the truth about them, telling the truth about yourself, and telling the truth about God all oh, they, they, they don't come easy. And suffering, we need to speak the truth in love. And we need to speak the truth about our, our, ourselves, which means admitting our own sin in the fact that at least some part of this suffering in this, whether it's a, a broken relationship, all of us have relationships that are broken and tainted. Fam family dynamics are hard and weird and strange at times because of sin. We need to be willing to at least look at ourselves and say, how have I contributed to this issue? What part of this is my fault? Second, in suffering, we need to speak the truth about our enemies. When we've been wrong, it's easy to exaggerate, right? We demonize the other person and make things look as outrageous as it can so that others sort of feel us. Right, so we, we retell the story of what happened. You know, I came into the house and I was just coming to bring over some groceries and she came and she slapped me in the face for no reason, out of nowhere. And then she cursed at me and I just said, bless you and I left. <laughs> That's not what happened, <laughs> right? But, but we wanna win that person over to us at that moment, so we exaggerate the story. Um, all of us have done this, I've done it. <laughs> um, we have to tell the truth about the person as well and not demonize them. 
Um, now, um, sorry, I lost my place with that example, which wasn't in my notes. That's why I got to stick with my notes. Um, Don't go beyond. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? I'm gonna put that on the front of my notebook. <laughs> That was good. Okay, now when we tell stories like that and spark that kind of outrage, it might make us feel a little better for a little bit. But um, when people respond to the situation or the story that we've told them that isn't a true story, it's not only deceiving ourselves, it's deceiving them. So it's not loving or charitable to them or to the person you're, t you're telling the story about. Um, and it comes, again, at the expense of that person's reputation, how, that, how does this person you're telling the story views that other person. There are a lot of consequences for that. So we shouldn't dis distort the perspective. We should tell the truth because we could actually be keeping ourselves from being helped by this friend by telling them the truth about the story. This is what actually happened. The Lord encourages us through one another, right? So we tell a truthful story and then we pray that God would give wisdom to the person we're talking to, that they would, he would help them to help us, right, in that situation, because what we want is to be, to make it right. Um, we also need to speak the truth about God. The Psalms are a great example of what it looks like to ask hard questions, and yet not accuse God of doing evil. Speaking the truth about God to ourselves and others requires self-control, and a lot of times a good friend to correct us. That's a blessing. Third here, <clears throat> it says Christ did not retaliate. First Peter says that he didn't even threaten. There are a million little ways that we can retaliate when we're suffering. A million little ways that we can punish others and think that we are also actually punishing God. But in suffering, Jesus is our example of one who suffered without retaliation. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, that's a very high standard. But keep in mind that Jesus' example isn't another law to follow, but a pointer to what is best for you. So, we, we, we shouldn't turn this into some type of law keeping where we think we can get to God by doing this. Don't make not retaliating a way to keep the law of God, to get to God. Not retaliating is actually an act of faith, right? If you suffer as he did, you will be glad for it. Jesus' example points to freedom and joy. And so, just like in our chapter in Hebrews, we all see that this is summed up in faith. Don't go and do the wrong thing and trusting yourself to God. In faith, go and do that. In faith, don't do the wrong thing. In faith, go and do the right thing. In faith, tell the truth about the situation. Be truthful um, with yourself about yourself. In faith, be truthful um, about what the other person did. In faith, entrust yourself to God. This is all stuff that comes um, supernaturally. We don't naturally will ourselves to um, peer into our own hearts to discern what's down there. Right? That's something that happens by the Spirit. And we need to recognize that. <clears throat> when we are in a fight um, of faith, we have to, as Christ did, continue to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Right? Continue entrusting ourselves to the Lord, trusting that he will vindicate you, right? He will, um, he will uphold you. You can cast yourself upon him who cares for you, and he will care for you, right? So we don't have to think to ourselves, well, God's not doing enough. Look, let me put on the boxing gloves and really go show this person what I think about them. And most of the time that happens in your heart, right? We, we rehearse the situation and we think, I should have said this. You know, and when he said that, I should have said this. And we sort of get the best of them in our hearts and minds as we sort of regurgitate over and over and over and over. And we stew on it, which can lead to a root of bitterness, as the Bible says. And we don't want to do that. But the answer to that 
is faith and trusting ourselves to God who judges justly. Okay? In conclusion here, just want to give us some time to ask a couple questions. <clears throat> As you understand Jesus' experience, consider how well he understands your present trial and be encouraged in your prayers for deliverance and help, maybe even using the prayer in Psalm 7. Then as you trust in God's providence and his care for you, turn to look at Jesus as an example. Were you threatened? He was threatened. Um, did someone slander your character? He was slandered. Did someone spit in your face, either metaphorically or physically? It happened to him. But the Bible says you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. That's not saying that somebody hasn't beat you up. It's saying that you haven't died on a cross. You haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood. If you trust that he knows what he's doing, you'll be able to control that inner rebellious desire that wants to act out and sin. If you trust that he's, what he's doing is good for you, you'll speak the truth about him and about your own sin and the confrontation that you had. If you trust that your God is completely in control, you'll leave vengeance to him and face each day with humility, able to seek good that God intends for you to do in hard circumstances, even to that person that offended you. Rather than being consumed with defending yourself or bitterness, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. As the Bible says, Jesus did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Okay? Well, that's all I have for us. Let me uh, take a couple questions. Norm. Um, on the topic of retaliation, <clears throat> I find there's levels. There's the inner level and the outer level. I'm very beautiful up here. I'm making progress in the outer retaliation. Yeah. But internally, you know, you're right when you say it's supernatural because I'm always trying to do some video editing. I should have said that. Hmm. <laughs> video. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some magical powers to make things right, you know, like yeah. this guy cuts me off on the road and I got the power to just make his car flip over into the ditch. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Jesus did that naturally. He kept entrusting himself to his father to judge his justly. Yeah. So, um, I praise the Lord when I get to that point because I know it's not natural. Yeah. I was brought yeah. up that way to be vindictive and, and so on. So it's a constant struggle. So those two levels, inner retaliation, still lots of sin. Outer yeah. retaliation is somewhat getting on track. Yeah. Yep. That's good. Very true. I think we can all sympathize and empathize with that. Yep. Any other comments or questions? No? All right. Go ahead, Harrison. You know, I, uh, I was just listening to uh, um, this, this clip from Retro Radio this morning on the way here. Yeah. And uh, it was actually uh, right on point with the, the Bible study today. He was talking about how um, uh, a few of the, a few of the, the great amazing things about, um, about our triune God is that God actually intercedes for us and he prays for us and he, he, he actually stoops down to mm. our level Amen. Yeah. You know, and um, he prays for us and understands our suffering you know like you know, Romans 8.26 where he uh, you know the Holy Spirit intercedes for us right uh, we, don't, we don't know what to pray for right and um, uh, it's just an amazing thing it reminds me of in the 18th century there was
So I think, I think we should see uh, Christ, uh, who is now seated at the right hand of God, or even the incarnation, as uh, Christ continuing as a faithful high priest, right? So in the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, uh, a body is prepared for him, right? God prepares a body for him, he takes on this body to himself in a hypostatic union, and in his suffering, um, he is enduring um, suffering. He's enduring uh, change, right? So he has, like, like man, being fully like man in that way. God is, as I talked about towards the, the middle of the class, God in his divine essence, he's not lacking knowledge, right? So we can't say that, well, God doesn't understand this thing or that thing because there is nothing in creation as God is the creator who made it. There's nothing that he doesn't understand in creation. When Christ takes upon himself human flesh, when the body is prepared for him, he is fulfilling an eternal purpose in order to become a high priest. So God has created man and designed man and eternally purposed that Christ would take upon himself human flesh in order to die in the place of fallen men. And so it's an eternal purpose fulfilled rather than a God who doesn't know trying to um, saying, well, I need to better understand this. 
right? So I think if we look at it along those two lines, and again, these are weightier and deeper things, but they're important. If we say that God doesn't understand and he's doing this in order that he would better understand, then we're denying God's omniscience and every other attribute that God is. Um, but if we say that he is uh, fulfilling an eternal purposes in order to redeem a people and bring them to God, then I think we're thinking about it along the right lines. Um, okay, that's all I have time for. <laughs> we, we can talk after. Okay. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you that you are uh, sufficient, that you haven't left us to ourselves. We pray that you would continue to uphold us by the power of your word. Help us to entrust ourselves to you, Lord. Help us to look to Christ as an example um, and as our hope in the gospel, one who has suffered in our place. Uh, help us to remember your kindness toward us so that we would be able to show that kindness towards others. And um, bless us now, Lord, as we go into the sanctuary to sit under your preached word. Uh, give us an attentiveness, a reverence, uh, a good, a right reverence for your word. And um, help us to see it as it truly is. You speaking through us, to us through your minister. And uh, bless us in that. In Christ's name, amen.